Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Today, we are going to talk Welcome about the Welcome to the God Soga- Podcast. Today, Wait, what? Who's this? I don't know. Who are you? Um, this is Doug from the Libertarian Christian Institute. This is the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Well, this is the Godarchy Podcast. The Godarchy Podcast. Uh, yeah. Is this Mike? It is. Hey, Mike. How are you? What are you going to do your podcast on? Well, I was going to do it on the so-called biblical values of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. No way. Because that's about what I was just going to sit down and talk about. Well, maybe we ought to just talk about it together. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds good. So maybe we should like tell everybody what we're actually going to talk about because it's <laughs> yeah. a, there's there's this article that was published on Sojourners, which is uh, Jim Wallace's organization, and we'll uh, I, I, we have a show notes page. I bet you do too. We'll probably post we the do, link indeed. on that. Yeah. So there's this article published by. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Obery M. Hendricks Jr. And it was published on January 30th of 2019. And the title of this article, Mike, if you could believe it, is called The Biblical Values of Ocasio-Cortez's Democratic Socialism. And biblical is not in scare quotes, which is the way I would publish it. Yeah, this is totally uh, unironic. Yes, right. So the the author here, uh, Hendricks, channels Martin Luther King Jr. several times throughout the article. So mm-hmm. what I'll do here is I'll just kind of do the, uh, I'll play the Tom Woods to the Bob Murphy and do the summary of the article, and then we'll actually talk about it. Uh, but we'll we'll post it on the show notes page. So basically, the author channels Martin Luther King Jr. saying that, you know, something is wrong with capitalism when there's a problem with the distribution of wealth for all God's children, and maybe we should move toward uh, democratic socialism. And so the democratic socialism, which is sort of championed right now by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC for short, or Mike, you told me somebody calls her the bartender. Yeah, Peter Schiff calls her the bartender, <laughs> I guess referring is- to her former career path. Oh, okay. Well, she needs a lot of tips. Maybe she can listen to our episode and listen to some basic economics. So- What's interesting to me is that the article sort of talks, the guy starts, well, I don't want to comment too much here, but like the guy starts off by saying that, you know, it seems like he's writing to the people who think we're a Christian nation or who want us to be or always have, you know, who believe we've always been a Christian nation uh, about America. And basically saying that democratic socialism and the Bible share a strikingly similar vision of what constitutes a fair and just society. Capitalism, however, does not share that vision. Obviously, we're talking about applying some anthropomorphic, uh, you know, motives and things to both uh, democratic socialism and the Bible uh, and capitalism, of course. Um, So the Bible and democratic socialism preach the government should enact policies that address the needs of the poor, provide equal access to opportunity and legislate policies that curb inequity. And that any government that ignores the interests of the poor is an unjust government in need of correction. As King put it, quote, the curse of poverty has no justification in our age. It is a social it is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism, unquote. 
So then he goes on talking about how the Bible and democratic socialism, and it really isn't about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's really about her. You know, I'm sure there's a little bit of clickbaitiness in putting her name in the title, but sure. uh, that's fair. It's not it's not really a criticism here. Um, so the Bible envisioned a just and equitable order. God never intended some of his children to live in inordinate superfluous wealth, while others live in abject deadening poverty. Talk about a striking uh, extremes there. The Bible and democratic socialism and Martin Luther King Jr., Share the same essential concerns such as, and I don't think this is an exhaustive list, health care for all, a fair wage, minimum income for everyone, fair treatment of workers. There's verses, believe it or not, to support each of these things that he that he mentions, which we'll, we'll get to in, in our commentary. Uh, the, the, the author Hendricks goes on to say, sadly, in our capitalist society, many American workers find themselves subject to caprice, to the caprice and greed of corporate elites, many of whom annually earn in excess of 300 times the salaries of their average workers. Um, and so he thinks that, and he kind of wraps this up saying that democratic socialism is demonized because its proponents' insistence on economic fairness and social responsibility threatens the power of those who wield America's economic reins. Capitalism, and this is this, this next thing is just unironic. Granted, capitalism has generated immense wealth, markedly improved global living standards, and made life more comfortable for many. Yet, capitalism has also caused immeasurable suffering, systematic oppression, and debilitating social alienation. Oh, don't comment mm-hmm. yet. Don't comment yet. No, don't comment yeah, yet. You, you got to be. Yeah, got to get there. Got to be there. I just got to analyze it. it, Yeah. If Tom Woods can do it, you can do it. <laughs> it sponsored America's shameful trade in human chattel. Exploits millions of workers who aren't paid a living wage and leaves to many many to sicken and die because they can't afford health care. Capitalism rewards, in fact, depends on ruthless self-interest. It values profits over people, promotes materialism at the expense of spiritual values, dispenses power without responsibility, and treats human beings like commodities. Blah. So I, I've never heard those accusations before. Have you, Mike? I'll tell you, I was, I was floored. Oh, and my goodness. Floored, I mean, not surprised. <laughs> Well, uh, that that was sarcasm in case it's not clear from the donor voices. Um, so, yeah. So so Hendrix here is it's in, and I kind of looked that up on the site. He's written for Sojourners in the past um, over, for over a decade. He's written several articles. He teaches religion and African-American studies at Columbia University. He's the author of The Politics of Jesus, Reclaiming the True Revolutionary Nature of Jesus' Teachings and How They Have Been Corrupted. So that's the author that we're talking about. It's an article on Sojo.net or Soho, Sojourners. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sojourners is the website, uh, which is run by Jim Wallace. So, Mike, <laughs> somebody, I think, posted this on Facebook and you were like, oh, my goodness. Do I really have to read that? That sounds like it's not going to be. <laughs> yeah, this is all Ruth Ryder's fault. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah. Well, we know Ruth. Yeah. yeah our good friend Ruth. Yeah. That's how, that's how I've, I came across the article and, and it was as mind numbing as I expected it to be. Yeah. Well, and I had read it before that, and I just I kind of skimmed through it. I'm like, yeah, I've I've heard this this before, and all right, so let's just let's just go into the commentary. I think we 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 thought, hey, it would be a good idea since we're probably both going to be equally as frustrated to kind of tackle it together, and because we'll probably see different things. Now, you've actually written an article, Mike, that's posted on your blog, 
Um, and so I think it'd be good to kind of go over some of your initial thoughts and what you wrote, partly because it's probably not entirely new to our form of listener, the libertarian slash anarchist uh, person who is totally in favor of some sort of capitalism. Yeah, so I kind of uh, just my initial reaction, the 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 quote that jumped out at me and people that have listened to the Godarchy podcast and have followed my work at godarchy.org will know that uh, a big focus of mine is violence, force and coercion. I'm against that. And uh, so a lot of what I try to do is just hold a mirror up and at least make people own the violence, force and coercion in their own worldview. And that's difficult to do. Uh, and so there was one quote that really jumped out at me in this article. Uh, Hendricks says, democratic socialism seeks to build a more humane society, not by force or compulsion, but by way of the age-old democratic process of one person, one vote. So he obviously completely rejects the notion that democratic socialism has any force or compulsion to it at all. Mike, that's not surprising. I mean, like most of these people who advocate democratic socialism don't think about the aggressive nature of what they and they want to impose. Yeah, I kind of used an analogy. Uh, it, it reminds me of of going down a road, and you kind of see something clearly. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put, I don't want to disparage Hendrix. I don't think I think he has good intentions, but I don't think he's seen the whole picture. And mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't know how you make folks see the whole picture. I don't know if you can because they're convinced that their means are are they're focused on the mean or the ends I should say and they're not looking at the the ethical and moral validity of their of their means so I don't know yeah what's interesting to me is that and he doesn't explicitly mention this but Martin Luther King would be considered maybe not a absolutist pacifist um, because I'm pretty sure I think he carried a gun but he believed in nonviolent resistance. Uh, which is sort of the ethos of it. And it seems to me that at least like people who, like us who are libertarians and believe in peaceful interaction, um, setting aside the whole self-defense question, it's not for our conversation here, right. but thinking like you'd think that even if they reject it, people on the left would be like, oh, well, at least you libertarians believe in peace. We don't think you apply it correctly, but we're really glad that you you want peaceful act interactions in 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 politics in, or in society and that you want a government that enables that rather than, you know, exacerbates conflict. Like, the, but that's not the compliment we get at all. <laughs> no, no. So anyway, no, we hate poor people. <laughs> no, we just hate poor people. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, I just, I just watched a trailer, uh, about, uh, a new documentary about Arthur Brooks and he, he quotes that he got into this free enterprise thing because he wanted to see poverty eliminated. <laughs> like, I don't think these people listen to real libertarians. Well, anyway, this isn't about libertarianism. This is about us talking about the biblical values of Ocasio-Cortez's democratic social. I can't even say that with a straight face. Right. So, like the so, biblical you know, values. So my initial initial conclusion, and, and I think we have a lot farther that we need to dig, but my initial conclusion is using violence and force and coercion, even if, you're, even if your ends are good, is not a biblical value. No, it's not. 
Yeah. Well, I think if that's all we had to say, we could be done with our little short episode and and be done. But there's a lot of like analysis into what Hendrix is proposing Absolutely. that that we should probably get, get into. And, and I think the I, I hope I mean, we haven't said it yet. We're about to have this conversation that we've sort of outlined for ourselves here. Uh, we hope that our listeners will see the value in how we approach it and some in some information. Um, one thing that, you know, I don't know, it just, it just comes to mind is that, you know, Mike and I aren't, I don't think you're a trained economist. I'm not a trained economist. Um, you're really good at understanding the constitution. You're a really, really great libertarian, but we have to stand on the shoulders of people who are really, really good economists and philosophers. And so we may not be able to name everybody who we are standing on the shoulders of, but like throughout this conversation, we're like going on things that we've learned from the best and brightest libertarian minds. And so, you know, maybe you've read some of them, maybe you haven't. Uh, And so anyway, I don't know why I just thought of that because um, it seems like, you know, I actually, I do know why now that I'm thinking about it here, just reflecting, there are some times where I make online or in conversation weak arguments for things that are libertarian. And I later think, that's not how, uh, say, Jason Brennan would put it. And I go back and I read something by Jason Brennan. Or I might say, man, I wish Norman were here to make that argument because I know Norman Horn is like really good at making mm-hmm. a point against this particular, you know, you know, combating this accusation at libertarians or whatever, whatever it might be. So anyway, Mike and I can't say everything about this article that could be said, uh, but we are going to say what comes to mind and we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think that's a very fair analysis. But one thing, I'm a trained journalist, which will automatically negate my credibility in the eyes of some people. But one <laughs> of the things one of the things that you do learn in jur- journalism school is how to research, distill information and and put it in terms that people can understand. And I do think that I'm pretty good at that. And, and in all fairness, I actually do have an accounting degree, which is a weird little known fact about Mike Meharry. Oh, nice. So I actually, I actually have some economics and, and, and uh, finance background on a formal level, although that was so many years ago. I don't know how much of it I really remember, <laughs> but I have yeah. the credential. So if you're a credential person, there you go. <laughs> All right, good. And, and I have degrees too. There you go. Yeah, so the real issue is just like... It seems to me that a lot of the condemnation from this article is that it's against the people who think we are and have always been a Christian nation, which I find there's a there's a bit of irony in there. And maybe if this point were made for rhetorical purposes only, um, then I could sort of just we probably wouldn't be doing an episode on it. But there's no mm-hmm. rhetorical purposes going on to sort of convince people like the people who um, I listened to growing up as a conservative Christian saying that we were we were a Christian nation. America was founded as on Christian principles and as a Christian nation. Um, and it, if that's really if if the point of this article were to simply tell those people, well, wait a second, what about these biblical principles, too, and make those people think, oh, really? Oh, well, and I guess we must adopt those <laughs> those those uh, programs that you that you have for us, you know, like universal health care, et cetera, and fair right. wages and all that, because, oh, my goodness, I, I, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Like if that were <laughs> if that were the purpose of this article, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. So I just found it a little ironic because Hendrix seems to want this to be a Christian nation because he's proposing that we follow the ethics of Jesus. Right. Does that make you uh, a little uncomfortable, Mike? 
Yeah, I almost feel like he's 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 pitting two groups against each other, neither of which I actually would fit into. Because I would certainly agree with him in analyzing some of the things that come out of the so-called religious right, uh, you know, and, and say that those aren't really biblical principles either. So I think probably if I sat down and talked to him, I, I think we could probably find some some pretty strong areas of agreement in terms of that. But he kind of, like you said, he kind of goes beyond um, b- beyond that and tries to create a paradigm of his own. And and to me, neither one of them really works. Right. Yeah. I mean, on, on one level, it's like, well, okay, I realize that you're a voter and you have people that you want to vote along with you and you want to vote for these things. And Jesus says that we should care for the poor and all of that. And so if you have a voice and if Christians have a voice, then we should vote for those things. I don't, I don't buy that. But like, if that's really all it was, that's one thing, but the article makes it very clear that what, and, and, the, the, the greater context of the place that this is being shared is Sojourner's website, which they are like would be called the Christian left um, if there if there ever was one. Um, yeah, it's just it's that's not really what it's all about. It's not just about, oh, voting what you, you know, uh, in a certain way. Yeah, um, it's our biblical vision is the correct biblical vision and your vis- biblical vision of capitalism is not. I mean, that's really what he's saying. He's yeah. putting it in that stark of terms. Yeah. Or like I wrote down, like a less terrible way of putting it would be that he's targeting people with poor biblical hermeneutics mm-hmm. with the same sort of level of hermeneutical, hermeneutical validity as the people he's criticizing. Like it's just like, well, none of this works. Like <laughs> my goal as a Christian is not to make the political system within which I reside a Christian one because I don't live in a Christian society. I live in a pluralist society. That's right. that's where I go in in that direction. I'm like, well, yeah, that all sounds great, and you know, in some some broad sense, these visions do do work. I mean, that's kind of the trick here is that the word vision is this vague, undefinable term that no one can really argue with because it's like, oh, well, look at all these really good things that we don't have because of capitalism, or that we don't have because. People are standing in the way of it. Yeah, I, I found that word odd too. The the whole idea of vision, um, and, and it almost almost feels like it reduces the gospel to a political program, mm-hmm. and that really does make me uncomfortable. I mean, especially as somebody in in you know people that have listened to me know that I'm I'm kind of of the of the mind that, uh, or at least sympathetic to the idea that as believers we don't really need to be involved in the political system at all because it's divisive and it's, you know, it's imposing and it's power hungry. And so, you know, when, when you start reducing the gospel into that type of, of a paradigm, it, it really does make me uncomfortable because I don't think that I, I certainly believe that there, there are political messages in the Bible, but I don't think the Bible was meant to be a political program. I mean, it's about right. it's about uh, it's about our spiritual lives and, and our relationship with our our Creator. Yeah, um, and and to, to to try to try to boil it down into an economic system. I think we're talking about when you get into economics, and we might get into this in a, in a little bit more as, as we get into this. But you're almost talking about trying to wed things that aren't meant to be wed. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I the word vision in terms of like a, for for sort of theological, I don't know, a theological angle on it would be something along the lines of like this, if I can put it. And and I actually would agree, sort of strictly speaking with this, that the Bible has more to say about life here on earth and the way in which we interact with each other 
and how we treat each other that benefits and values everybody. Mm -hmm. And it is the calling of the church to carry out that vision. Mm -hmm. Now, insofar as that strictly goes, that's, that's great because I think there is a trajectory of a sort of an eschatological trajectory that sends us, if we look ahead into the future, there's this kingdom. Now we can talk about, I mean, forgetting all of the like eschatologies and things like that, that's like, oh, here's what people's vision of the end times is all going to be about. At some point, <laughs> no matter how those events unfold, at some point we have a fully reigning God's kingdom, right? Right. And so we would we would say in God's kingdom that there is wholeness and shalom and justice. Uh, we could, I'll even use the term social justice because it will be a social experience. Um, it right. isn't just me and God and Mike and God and Norman Horn, who's not on this program, if it sounds like I'm talking about him as if he were, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and God, um, you know, it's not just individuals and God it's, we are all there together if, as, as as it were. Um, so my point there is that in, in so far as it goes, it's like, well, yeah, Christians, the Bible does cast a vision for what society ought to look like, or in, in some sort of like, yeah, maybe a vague sense, but the way in which that we get there is not prescribed because when the Bible does deal with, here's what you should do to the poor person, here's what you should do to the foreigner and the stranger, here's how you should treat such and such type people, it's in the context of an economic way of life and a, a social political context that is very foreign to what we experience in the West today. Right. And so what my big criticism to that is like, look, yeah, if you want to say, uh, just looking at the article here, uh, you know, healthcare for all, fair wage, minimum income for everyone and a fair treatment of workers. Okay, fine. Those are all really good things. And the Bible does envision a time where everybody gets a fair wage, healthcare for all, blah, 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 blah. But democratic socialism isn't the mechanism by which you could get there. And I'm not even, I'm not even, and I'll kind of renege there a little bit. I'm not even entirely sure the Bible explicitly says those things in the way the democratic socialists would want them to. So, um, Mike, you think it's a good time to like talk about the Bible verses he uses? Yeah, I think uh, I think this would be uh, yeah. an excellent time to, to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, so all right, let's see where. Let's go to the first one here. Psalm seventy-two. Give the king your justice, O God. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. I don't really think Hendricks is calling for the crushing of <laughs> capitalist oppressors. Like, that sounds a little violent. I don't think that's what he wants. <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> well, I hope not too. Although some some days I do wonder about the left's uh, vulnerability well, to doing those things. Uh, on the flip side of that, from my perspective, the uh, the ultimate oppressor is the the state. So I don't think he's advocating for crushing the state either for completely different reasons. Right. Well, and you know, here's the thing: like if we're talking about the king, which is would be the ancient equivalent of stand in for the state. Right. Uh, It's basically saying that the king needs to give deliverance to the needy, defend the cause of the poor, et cetera. Well, I would say free a a state that lets the free market happen without giving deference to the wealthy and the uh, the economically powerful, if if you can think of it that way, um, does a pretty good job of that. Because um, I don't know, Mike, in the past, what, 200 years, we've seen poverty, um, 
you know, relative to what it was, is very, very small. And we haven't had, you know, it hasn't been two centuries of active engagement in eliminating poverty. It's just simply happened through uh, in spite of or because of freedom. Right. And it's really due to wealth creation, which by and large is the application of capital to labor, which really is capitalism. It's so funny. They want so much capital because they want to just read, redo stuff with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's so it's, it's not envy though. It's, it's, uh, it's more than that. <laughs> That's what they say. It's not envy. It's, it's social justice. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Right, 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 right. You keep telling yourself <laughs> that. Oh man. So the article also goes on the Bible and democratic socialism preach the government should enact policies that address the needs of the poor provide equal access to opportunity and legislate policies that curb inequality or inequity to quote it properly. Um, I don't, I don't really know where the Bible says what type of policy should be done. Do you Mike? Yeah. Uh, And this is where I really think that this analysis goes off the rails because you know, you're, he's conflating two different areas of thought. He's, he's conflating ethics and economics And economics is a science, right? Economics tells you what will happen if you enact certain policies. Ethics tells us what kind of policies should be implemented. The fact that you want something to happen doesn't mean that you can implement a program that goes against what ethic or what economics is going to tell you is going to happen. So, you know, just as a a simple uh, example, It's undeniable that if you impose a minimum wage, it is going to create some level of unemployment on the margins. So you have to take that into consideration. You can't wish that away. I mean, if we could, we'd just uh, demand a a $1,000 minimum wage, and then we'd all be wealthy as as we could ever imagine, right? I mean, so that's that's where this really bothers me in terms of an economic analysis, because he's trying to make economics into an ethical proposition, and you can't do it any more than I can make physics into an ethical proposition. I mean, I can't rail against gravity, because if I jump off a building, I hit the ground, mm-hmm. and I can't rail against supply and demand because, you know, when I constrict the supply of something or artificially stimulate the demand or whatever policy I happen to implement, I I can't rail against the result of that and say it's uh, unethical or unjust. It just is what it is. Right. And uh, I I think there's a a gross, I'm sure that he's very good at theology and philosophy and African studies, but he's not good at economics. And that creates a great deal of trouble when you start talking about policy. Yeah. Well, you know, (sighs) this whole idea of like equal access to opportunity, I'm like, well, okay, let's examine the equal access to opportunity that you're living or even just minimum wage. Progressives don't talk about minimum wage laws that much anymore. They've moved on to living wage. But let's just we can even talk minimum, which is, uh, of course, something they don't like, how low it is, et cetera. They want the minimum wage to be a living wage, which I'm told, just a little side note, the minimum wage was intended to at the very beginning of when it was at its inception, it was intended to be a living wage. And at the time, that wage that was minimum was supposedly a living wage. There's a whole economic of, you know, monetary policy conversation there. But anyway, so of course, 
The dirty little secret is the minimum wage was actually pushed by unions in order to profit <laughs> union workers over uh, unskilled minorities. But I don't I guess we're supposed shh, to talk Mike, about shh, that right now. Shh, shh, Mike, don't, don't do that. No, we're not, supposed to talk about, we're not supposed to talk about the racism in the minimum wage because we're okay. white guys and we can't talk about those things. Oh, darn it. <laughs> right. I forget that it's true. So anyway, let's just evaluate the minimum wage. Forget the history, the racist, eugenic history of the minimum wage laws. Let's just talk about the people that you're preventing from having equal, equal access of opportunity through things like minimum wage laws, like the person whose productivity uh, as, let's say, a 19-year-old is not as high and therefore can't earn $15 an hour because nothing in the economy wants the, the kind of skills that that person is able to produce. Um, or for that matter, what about the, the regulation that, let's say, you're an immigrant and you want to braid hair? Oh, you need $30,000 for a license and training because all of the all of the hair braiders that are already in your town, they've come together and made sure the state won't let you do apply your trade uh, doing something like hair braiding. What about those things? I mean, come on, like we libertarians can talk every bit as much game about equal access to opportunity and how freedom is more for the poor than it really is for the rich. Um, we could talk about that all day long and the left doesn't want to hear it because their ideology prevents them from saying, Hmm, maybe there's a way in which we can get what we want by understanding a little bit of economic, uh, like basically having an economic analysis in the first place. Yeah, you know, Walter Williams tells a story in his autobiography, which is a fantastic read if uh, you're interested in such things, because he grew up in the projects in Philadelphia, and uh, he actually talks about how he got a job sweeping the floor. I think it was at a dry cleaner, um, and, and I may have the, the details of this wrong. It's been a while since I've read it, but he, he started off sweeping the floor for something like, you know, a quarter an hour or you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was some ridiculously low wage that would be absolutely uh, forbidden forbidden in today's legal climate. And as he was doing this, he had access to running the machinery. So he taught himself how to use the machinery. And then somebody got sick. And the next thing you know, he was able to move up because he originally had the opportunity to sweep the floor. And, uh, you know, we, we don't talk about those type of opportunities that that door would be completely closed in today's legal environment because you can't, you know, you can't hire somebody for that wage or because they're of this age or whatever, uh, you know, regulation or intervention into the, the free exchange of, of labor and monetary that the government wants to put in. Yeah. So the next the next part of that statement, legislate policies that curb inequity. OK, so I, we recently had on, on I recently had on my program, the Libertarian Christian podcast, uh, Brent Waters, who wrote the book Just Capitalism. And he was talking about one of the things that people who analyze the oppression of the poor in, in the scriptural admonitions against being wealthy and what the wealthy owe to the poor in terms of social deference. Um, there is a lot of contextualization that in, in those biblical admonitions about equality, equity, fair treatment, etc., that are there simply because or predominantly because 
the situation in which they found themselves in needed sort of a redistribution, if you will. Uh, so, for instance, and again, I don't want to get into this is definitely be way off topic, but like getting into the conversation about, you know, women in leadership and slaves and things like that, that we see in the Apostle Paul, right. uh, we we often commentators are going to say, well, Paul says certain things because, well, that's where they were living. And he was basically saying that, um, you know, women uh, should have long hair, men shouldn't have long hair, things like that, that are contextual to, well, in that society, that's the solution or in their particular context, the, the admonition that he gave them, the direction that he gave them was you need to behave this way. You need to consider things this way. And there are, obviously, we believe the scripture is for us today, and we believe that the scripture applies to us, the Holy Spirit is using the church to speak life and breathe life to the world through through the power of the gospel, and we believe the Bible is relevant for today. So I don't want to discount that at all, but the way in which it's relevant is how the Holy Spirit guides the church in speaking, speaking truth in our context, because that's what the Bible right. itself actually demonstrates uh, throughout. Um, it's not, it's not... Yeah, as some people say, an owner's manual, which is a little bit uh, undeserving of a title, but it basically gives admonitions in that context. So what does that mean? And what does that mean? Well, it means that the redistribution of wealth isn't poss- isn't necessarily the way you solve problems in a society whereby you earn wealth not by taking from others or not by hoarding it away from the poor in some sort of like peasant peasant world. But by, um, I don't know, more growth, maybe. And, you know, the whole rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. Uh, so there's just a lot of there's just a lot of uh, I don't know. It's just a naive statement that the Bible promotes policies that curb inequity. Well, yeah, but the things that you're asking for don't curb inequity. They just exacerbate the problem. Right. And that gets back to the whole the whole differentiation between economic realities and ethical goals. You know, um, you know, I, there's this misconception, I think, about the wealthy. And and I've certainly, and I'm sure you have too, met greedy, selfish people. I mean, there's greedy, selfish people everywhere. And quite frankly, I've met some greedy, selfish leftists. Um, so, you know, greed knows no political or ideological bounds. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's a human nature problem. But there's this misconception, I think, that uh, rich people have all of these piles of dollars and they put them in their basement and roll around them in, in them in the morning or, you know, the, the, the guy with the top hat and the monocle in his uh, his room full of gold and he goes in and he runs his hands to his gold coins. Rich people are investing their money into things that are producing capital that create businesses that allow people to be employed. There's a whole economic system here that gets uh, ignored. And when you interrupt that by intervening the government by force and taking things away from somebody to give them to somebody else, well, you might it's, it's the whole old adage. You, you can teach somebody to fish and they, they'll eat for a lifetime. You can give them a fish and they'll eat for a day. You can give a poor person a handful of money and that's great. But wouldn't it be better to have give them a system where they have a chance to to produce and actually generate wealth? That All of those economic things are ignored in this idea. We're just going to have equality by taking something from some people. And, you know, there's a cartoon where they're, they're going to make the forest equal and they do it by chopping down all the tall trees. So you have you have equality in in uh, in misery, I guess. 
So, Mike, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is kind of about your in reference to your article that you published. Democratic socialism seeks to build a more humane society, not by force or compulsion, but by way of age old democratic practice of one person, one vote. So I think this is really interesting because he didn't have to say not by force or compulsion, (laughs) but he had but he inserted that or the editor made him insert that. I think he felt like he had to. But why? Why would he have to say well, that? I mean, what is there something <laughs> that he I don't know. I'm, I'm getting a little psychological here, but I'm like, well, maybe he actually thinks that the only way he can do this is by force or compulsion. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I have democracy on my side. That's not that's right. not force or compulsion. Yeah. And that's you know, that's and that kind of goes back to to the point of my article. And really, I mean, I hate to say this, but in some ways, God, God is a one trick pony. I mean, I feel like every article I write, I use the term violence, force and coercion because I really do want to hold that mirror up. And if that is really the way that you think is the best way to order society and live among each other, at least please own it. And it's it's clear from the way he phrased that statement. He does not want to own it. I mean, we're going to veneer it. We're going to wallpaper it with with democracy and and basically say that if we get enough people to agree with this, then it's cool to uh, to basically hit the rest of the people who don't want to go along with your quote unquote vision. And, And, you know, that goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. We have we have competing political visions and that's the nature of politics. I was it was interesting. I was at the gym the other day and and. You know how you overhear conversations at the gym, and this guy was – they were talking politics. He was like, well, you know what the problem is? They were old, so this is my old man voice. You know what the problem is? Our polit- politics have just gotten too damn divisive. That's, that was his exact words. And the first thing that went through my mind is, well, that's what politics is. I mean <laughs> – that that's the point, you know. You divide up into groups, and we fight over who gets the power to control the other forty nine percent. So, I think I think you are onto something with that with that psychological observation. Yeah, and you know, kind of where I go with this is like, well, I it, it's weird because as a Christian, I look at this article from a theological perspective, and with the with the. With the one exception of his quoting of Jesus healed all of the people in Matthew 12, great multitudes followed him <laughs> and he this healed was, them all. That was bad. That was his evidence for you know, yeah. for healthcare for all. I'm like, <laughs> really? Um, what about the passage if, in scripture where Jesus didn't heal them because they didn't have enough faith? Like, right. come on. Really? Well, you could think, do better than that. I think, too, if there was if we lived in a world with unlimited resources, <laughs> I would be more than happy to give health care to all. And, well, you know, I think sure. Jesus had it wasn't like Jesus was going to heal 45 people and then run out of healing. Whereas right. in, right. in a in a in a real world that we live in, yeah. uh, in, in a world of scarcity, there are only so many resources and we have to decide how are those limited resources going to be distributed. And, you know, there's really only two choices here. This gets back to basic economics. So you can you can. Allocate resources through politics, which is basically politicians deciding who gets what, or we can allocate resources through the market, which is uh, driven by discovery through prices and and uh, basically the uh, the the sum of all voluntary interactions. I trust the voluntary interactions as imperfect as it may be more than I trust Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump to allocate resources because. I, I, you know, maybe it's just me, but I don't think they know enough to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's fair. And for those who are still wondering what my train of thought was about a minute and a half ago, which I derailed my own, what I was <laughs> going to continue saying was 
this whole other than the healthcare for all as a Christian, I have this sort of like, well, yeah, I think there's this biblical, you know, there is a biblical vision for the world and I want to see that happen too. Right. Okay. Uh, but I, so I have this weird tension in within me that says, but not everybody I live with, and I don't mean like my family, but not everybody I live among and work with and have to do business with and have to interact with basically my fellow citizens. There are a lot of people telling me, Mike, that they don't they don't they're not Christians. They have a different value system. They live by different ethics. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of weird for me to be like, oh, well, yeah, but you know what? Uh, Jesus said and God demands that we live in a just society that has certain policies. And this is what the government has to do, because. Well, that's just what the Bible says. Now, nobody on the left actually says it that way. They don't say, well, that's just what the Bible says, because obviously that would make them sound well, like they're talking like a hardcore conservative. Right. I was getting ready to say that that's actually the argument that you would get from the right. Right. Yeah, right. That's exactly that's exactly the argument. And I as a libertarian, I don't quite see the difference in what they're advocating for. I have a, a dear friend who it turns out, Mike, when we were talking, he actually lives near you. Uh, maybe maybe you can drive over and, and knock some sense into him. Nonviolently, <laughs> that is. No, yeah, uh, I'm not knocking anybody. But. <laughs> well, yeah, nonviolently knock some sense into him. It's like, don't you realize that this is what you look like, that you're basically saying, I want the war. I want us to be a Christian nation, but just this kind of Christian. Which right. which actually reminds me, I actually <laughs> I really think that if Donald Trump comes back from this spiritual retreat and gives an address to the nation from the Oval Office saying, you know, my spiritual advisors and I were reading the Bible uh, while we were doing some deep spiritual reflection. We realized that we're just not doing a good job of caring for the poor. And my whole approach to this, to the way in which I've been present is just really backward. And, and I've misused the scripture and I've just I've just really not done justice to the people who really need justice to happen in our society. And then continues to lay out what would basically be a progressive Christian's like greatest ambitions for whatever, whatever they want. Like it just lays out their whole program, you know, right. democratic socialism, but explains that this is what God told him to do because this is what God wants from society. I really wonder, Mike, how many people on the left or and, and forget the like the Christian left, but like how many people on the left that are not Christians would would be like, no separation of church and state. Are you crazy? This Donald Trump guy is horrible, but like he's advocating for all the policies that they want, most of the policies that they want, probably. And he's just saying, well, God told me to do this. I think there would. I don't. I think it would. I mean, the story itself itself would overshadow the actual policies. But um, what do you think? Do you think? Do you think they'd say anything? Do you think they'd they'd object? I think the cognitive dissonance would explode some of their brains. <laughs> um, I, I from what I've seen in the political discourse over the last couple of years, I think the the hatred for Donald Trump would probably override however they might be pleased about the the individual policies and uh you know they would they would find i think they would certainly want to find something wrong with it well yeah we want this but not from this guy right <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and it's almost you know it, we we kind of saw the the reverse 
when George Bush was president and he was running the wars and he was a war criminal. And then all of a sudden when Obama was running the same wars and running oh, them in yeah. the same way, uh, you know, all of a sudden the, the anti-war left vanished like a vapor. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times politics, again, it's, it's, it is divisive. That's the whole point. Uh, a lot of times it becomes more about personalities than even, even principles. Mm. So, yeah. you know, I imagine there would be some time, I mean, you know, maybe somebody like, uh, like our author here who I really do think probably has genuinely sincere motives. He might embrace it pragmatically as, as seeing it as a good thing. I think a lot of people on the left would just go nuts because it was Trump. And, uh, and then of course the right would accuse him of being, a uh, a religious nut. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Which is, would be ironic. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so let's go on to the fair wage. I think you probably have a little more to say about this than I do, but like, it's one of those, like, it's an undefinable, Oh wait, let me, let me read the, um, let me read the verse. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors work for nothing and does not give them their wages. Jeremiah 22. So yeah, I thought that was a, kind of a weird verse to use to make a case for wages. Why is that? Well, there aren't any wages in, the, in that particular quote. I mean, he's talking about not paying their wages. That's slavery, right? Right. So, yeah, you know what this brought up in my mind is is just like you said. What what is a fair wage? So, I mean, nobody's ever told me exactly what that is. I mean, it's an arbitrary number, right? Um, and you can't. You can't put a you can't put anything on it because if if I make fifteen dollars an hour, well, there's certainly going to still be things that I can't afford that I might need. So mm-hmm. is that fair? I mean, what what does yeah. fair mean? How we, how do we even define that? So it's really, you know, it's a political term that that's that's kind of loaded for a political purpose, and we're all supposed to nod in agreement, and then whatever the policy is that they come up with, then that's going to be the fair wage, I guess, by definition. But I would argue that. That true fair, and again, this is this is economics. Looking at things instead of of conflating the ethics and the economics, I would say a fair wage is the wage that you agree to pay me for the work that I'm willing to do for you. The the virtue by virtue of the fact that that you, Doug, say, Mike, I'll give you X if you'll do Y, and I go, yeah, I'll take X for Y. To me, that's fair. Mm-hmm. We we have come to a consensual agreement, and you know you kind of you kind of get this whole uh, this whole sense of what how undefinable fairness is in in the parable of the vineyard, and you know I, I don't like using a parable that was really intended to make a spiritual point uh, to try to make an economic point, but I think I can stretch it a little bit here. Uh, but you'll remember that parable. You know you had the workers that come in, they come in first thing in the morning, and the the vineyard owner agrees to pay them X. And then some people come in at midday and he agrees to pay them X. And then some people come in in the last hour and he agrees to pay them X. And then at the end of the day, the people at the uh, that, that came in early, they're mad because they don't think it was fair that he paid them all the same. Well, they all agreed to that wage. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is a fair wage. And, and I think that, you know, again, it gets into this whole problem with these with these political definitions and these political programs. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. Fair doesn't mean anything. It's just a word that we throw out there. And, and, uh, uh, I don't know. I, it frustrates me because yeah. 
you know, I, I, I tend to think economically and there's no economic thought in this. It's like, well, we want people to make X, so therefore we'll make it happen without any any respect at all for the uh, the scarcity and the realities. And again, you know, you're talking about the way people view the world. People think corporations are sitting on all these huge bags of money. My, my wife ran a grocery store for years um, and, and she'll tell you they make penny profit. You know, mm-hmm. the, the profit that they're making is minimal. People say, well, they could pay their workers a lot more. Well, no, they really couldn't, not if they're going to stay in business. So, yeah. you know, they go out of business, then you don't have a job at all. And that's not fair. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have family members who own uh, uh, restaurants and they're like, I want to pay my employees more. But like there's there's economic pressure uh, that he can't. And it's not like he's greedy, like. Uh, like my dad, he's like one of the least greedy people I know. And he's so generous. I mean, I grew up with him being generous to like everybody who was in need in our community. And yeah, I mean, there's just, there's limitations to it. I will say this. I want to, I want to pay a little deference to the, the person who wants people to be paid a fair wage because there is something larger that isn't really addressed in this article, which is not, this article doesn't address it in the right way because there it, it, it wants to answer the question with a political tactic, like you said, like it's just like, oh, well, we want fair wages. OK, great. Right. That's what you want to see happen. But what you're really addressing is what we would call power, power differential. Right. Um, and so there is there there is an economic situation whereby laborers have less advantage in terms of social power dynamics than, say, an employer and especially a large employer. Right. Like a larger company and so forth. And so and and that's in some ways, that's why unions were which which is not an unlibertarian idea. Uh, The concept of unions is actually very libertarian to collectively go to come together and bargain and so forth. But Mm -hmm. if there are power, if there's basically, yes, it's voluntary on the one hand, like, oh, yeah, I agreed to pay, you know, like Mike's going to pay me 20 bucks to mow his yard, even though I'd rather get 40 bucks. Um, But because I'm desperate, I'm going to do the work uh, and Mike doesn't have 40 bucks. So I'd rather have 20 than zero, Um, you know, but if Mike is seeing that as a as, oh, well, I know Doug, you know, is uh, can't find work. So I'm going to get cheap work from Doug. And again, I'm I'm attributing motives to Mike um, Mm. and which which may or may not be fair. But if he's using his advantage to take advantage of me, I could see that as a situation in which fair wages could be paid even though they aren't. The down the, the, the problem is, as you said, Mike, most industries have you know razor thin profit margins or their profit margins may not be razor thin, but they fluctuate up and down so much that they can't be razor thin, but they have to have like, you know, have, there has to be rainy day profit, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it because I'm not an accountant. What would you call it that you have <laughs> profits that, you know, pay for the fact that you don't have profits a year from now? Retained earnings. Retained earnings. There we go. Uh, <laughs> I should know what these things mean. I just don't remember all the <laughs> terminology. Um, so anyway, it's just really interesting to me that like if he wants to talk about the power, di- uh, you know, power dynamics and how some people don't have as much power uh, as others based on social status, standing, whatever, um, then address that. Don't don't use politically charged terms like fair, fair wages. And also recognize that the any policy that you implement is going to have consequences. So you could you could say, you know, Mike is a is a greedy SOB and, uh, you know, he's he's taking advantage of Doug and his desperation. 
and we could pass a law that forces me to pay $30. And then and, I don't get anything. Well, yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, is there's 10 other people that need their lawn mowed that would be willing to pay $25 uh, because that's what they can afford. And they're not trying to exploit Doug at all. But all of a sudden you're punishing them. You're making it impossible for them to hire Doug as well. So, you know, it's it, it's it's difficult to correct a a problem of the heart and we all and we know these exist we know that there's greed we know that there is uh, there are power differentials we know that there are, are evil people who will take advantage of others because uh, they get in positions of power but we also have to recognize that government's not necessarily the solution for that because all you're doing is you're giving these fallible people power. So, you know, people that are in government, this is another one of those fallacies that drives me crazy. It's almost like corporations and business people are greedy and uh, they're after power and only only after things for themselves. But politicians, they're noble and they want to help the poor and take care of people. That's a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so like even F.A. Hayek says like the worst get on top or as J.R.R. Tolkien said, the most improper job of any man is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it. And least of all those who seek the opportunity. Oh, that's really awesome, isn't it? It's it's true. And and so I think, you know, again, you have to go back to the the pure economic calculation and it, it's cold and hard. But but we can't we can't fix like I was I think that's what I was trying to get at. You can't fix these problems of the heart by applying bad economics because the bad economics, we know that they're going to yield bad results. And so we have to, you know, we have to recognize that there's scarcity and there is evil in the world, which system of distributing, distributing, distributing these scarce resources is going to be the best, not perfect. We're not going to get perfect, but which is going to be the best politicians planning or markets operating. And I think it's undeniable from an economic standpoint that the markets operating while imperfect are better at distributing the scarce resources than the politicians. Again, you know, the, the people that are advocating for all of this government's intervention and government solution have to recognize that their people aren't always going to be in charge. Donald Trump is going to be in charge sometimes, you know. And so you have to remember that whatever power that you're giving the government to do whatever you want it to do, at some point that same power is going to be in the hands of people that you absolutely loathe, but they're still going to have the same power. And I don't think that uh, a lot of people that depend on political solutions calculate that uh, in the way that they should. So do you think this author, Hendricks, uh, what, what do you think he thinks of capitalism? Because it seems like he just, you know, eschews the capitalist system, gives it a little bit of faint praise at the end, but he doesn't really define it. Yeah, that kind of bothered me. Uh, that was one of the things that stood out as I was kind of digging a little bit deeper into the, the article. Um, he, he doesn't define those terms at all. I mean, I think we can assume that when he talks about democratic socialism, he's talking about this political platform promoted by AOC and uh, or as uh, Peter says, the bartender and uh, Bernie. But he throws the word uh, capitalism around and, and I'm not sure – what he means, I think probably what he means is the political philosophy of Republicans and conservatives, which. Oh, well, we're I, not for that either. 
<laughs> I, know, I was going to say, I, I reject <laughs> it's another brand of statism, right? Uh, and, and, and it would be more apt to call it corporatism or maybe mercantilism. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's this government. Uh, I mean, sometimes it even borders on fascism, which is, is, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a national control of private, private enterprise. Um, so, you know, Republican ideology has elements of socialism to, to it as well, but that's not the kind of socialism that the, the progressive folks want. Um, so, you know, again, it gets back to separating these economic systems and from the attached political baggage. And if we look at things in strictly an economic sense, uh, then we can start making some value-free assessments. Um, we, we have this in our notes. I'm just going to read it. Capitalism is not equal to the things in the economy that we feel badly about. And democratic socialism is not all of the things that give us good feelings. Um, it, they are economic systems. And as we've talked about, economics have consequences, just like chemistry has consequences and physics has consequences. And we have to take those things into account. And, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of, of hesitance from people who are Christians and religious people in general and ethicists, maybe even expanding it a little broader. Um, they, don't like economics because it's cold and it's calculating and it doesn't take into the the human factor into account. And you can see this in a lot of the phraseology that Hendrix uses. Um, but I think you're trying to hang too much on economics. Economics doesn't claim to settle greed. It doesn't claim to create an ethical system. It doesn't claim, as I've mentioned before, it doesn't, doesn't claim to know what we should pursue. It just tells us the consequences of various policies. So we need to look at our ethical values. And I think you and I would probably agree with a, a lot of things that Hendricks wants. We want a fair and just world. The question is, will this political system called democratic socialism make that happen? And I think the answer from from an economic and, and political standpoint is no. Yeah. Well, and I am reminded of the F.A. Hyatt quote, uh, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And I mean, democratic socialism is a designed system that for all of its good intentions about things, and I'm honestly a little skeptical by some people who advocate it, their intentions. Um, but, in, you know, the people on the ground who look at that and say, oh, yeah, that looks good. Let's let's vote for that. Uh, I can for all their good intentions. It's like, well, wait a second. Do you really think that you can design this? Is that really? Right. Are you? <laughs> um, yeah, just. Uh. Matt Ridley wrote a book, uh, The Evolution of Everything, and with 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 the exception of his sort of anti-creationist, um, you know, in terms of like the six day earth creationist, like he went on a diatribe there in like one of the one of the chapters with the exception of that being a little distasteful to me. Um, he, he talks about how these people think that just because things are well intentioned means that they're they were intended and created like even. Even a young earth six day creationist who's a libertarian who believes in free markets will know that the free market wasn't organized and strategized. And like that's that's kind of the opposite of the free market. It's not a planned system. It's not a planned. uh, It's something that arrives at organically. And so there's this sort of like in the back of my mind, anybody who has these like plans are like, here's how we're going to steer the economy. I'm like, oh, so you're a creationist. Like you think you can (laughs) you can create the kind of system that you want. I don't really say that because I don't really have a whole bunch of backup because it's been a while since I've read Ridley's book. I'm not really kind of on my game with that with that sort right. of rhetoric. But uh, yeah, 
anyway, yeah, um, and that that gets into a good point, and, and and we won't go into it here because that would take us down a, a huge bunny trail of of economic theory. I actually touched on this in a couple episodes back on my podcast about that I simply titled economics, um, but you know that gets into the the whole uh, Hayekian problem with knowledge that got, you know, the knowledge problem that there's, there's no way a person or a group of people can possess all of the knowledge necessary to plan even the simplest uh, economy, much less a complex economy like yeah, we have now. Yeah. And then the mis, uh, Mises, uh, which is similarly, similarly related to calculation problem, which is simply put, when you start messing with prices, you ruin the signals that tell you how to best distribute resources. Prices are like signposts. And when you start tearing down signposts, you lose your way. And so these are fundamental economic principles that dictate that certain things are going to work and certain things that aren't. I, I found this quote the other day. Actually, this is in Tom Woods's book. He wrote a book called The Church and the State or The Church and the Market. It's not the church, the church and the Market, which I'm just reading actually right now. Uh, directed toward the Catholic Church, but a fantastic book for, I think, anybody who's a Christian and interested in economics. And he quotes Father James Sadowski, who's a professor of philosophy at Fordham University. And, and I think this summarizes what we're trying to get at on this particular train of thought. Economics indicates the probable effect of certain policies, while ethics determines what one should do. So they're two different things. And when you start talking about capitalism in this broad uh, brushstrokes that Hendrix is using, you're trying to put two things together, ethics and economics, that are, are actually doing two different things. Well, Mike, there's probably a hundred other things that we <laughs> could <laughs> analyze about this article. It's not even yeah, that long of an article. It will take you far less time to read it than it was for you to listen to this episode. But man, there's just so much to talk about with this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I'm glad we were able to do this podcast together. Uh, I hope both of our audiences will discover each other's podcast. For listeners of the Godarchy podcast, the Libertarian Christian podcast, we have over 100 episodes. We've had uh, guests on like Mike Meharry. Mike, it was like back who's, in August of that? last year. Who's that guy? <laughs> it was like back in August of last year. I thought it was just like a few months ago. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It was like summertime. Has it, has it been we, that long? Yeah, we talked about we talked about. Um, the constant no constitution yeah, we, uh, we yeah had, of course we had, we had to, to talk, talk about that we had to talk about that's the, that's the only thing i know about so we we talk about the intersection of faith and politics and uh, and <laughs> and so uh mike tell tell my listeners my standard listeners what is the godarchy podcast about well the godarchy podcast is new i think this is going to be like episode number 12 and um i'm just trying to explore various aspects of uh our Christian faith and how it intersects with uh, primarily libertarian anarchism, although I don't really like the word anarchism. I've been using the word voluntarism, uh, the idea that we interact voluntarily, uh, free of coercion, force, and violence. Uh, so I've had episodes on uh, just some kind of foundational things like uh, who owns us and uh, the non-aggression principle and how that intersects with the uh, the second great commandment economics. I've had a couple of guests. I had uh, Jason Rink, who uh, folks over at the Libertarian Christian Institute will know, uh, and we talked about stuff. 
uh, wide-ranging conversation, particularly about decentralization. And uh, and then I've also had uh, Ryan Burgett, who's a Mennonite pastor, and we talked about Christian pacifism and nonviolence, which is a really, really interesting episode. So, you know, I'm just, just kind of getting started, but uh, continue. I want to continue doing those kinds of things. Excellent. Well, I guess we can thank each other for joining each other on our podcast. I really appreciate you joining the Godarchy podcast. Yeah, thanks for being part of the Libertarian Christian podcast, Mike. It's been a pleasure. I, th- I think it's it's been good. Like you said, there's so much you could tease out of this article because it really gets down to fundamental worldviews and and fundamental assumptions about how things should work. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music